Good morning, Reverend. I'm glad you're here. Let's see if we can get all this electronic stuff to work. No? I don't know how the Apostle Paul was able to do his work without all of these things, but he did. We are in the seventh part of a series on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. And this morning, we want to focus on one particular aspect of the ministry's work in us, and it's entitled The Fellowship of the Spirit. Now, this morning's sermon was planned four months ago while I was in China. And I laid out this sermon series and selected this text for today. So, I believe that this scripture is orchestrated by God's good providence. Excuse me? Oh, yes it is. I'll take care of that. Thank you. That was my wife's help. That should be from 2 Corinthians 13, 11 through 14. In the midst of all the busyness. Thank you. Um, I want to make it clear that what I'm going to say to you today, I'm not campaigning for anyone or anything. All right? But I am campaigning for grace and mercy. That's my goal. And I hope that you can receive that as from the Lord and from his word. When I was a uh, young boy, my family went to a church that had what they called a fellowship hall. Have any of you had that background? Um, And when announcements were made in church, I got all excited when I heard that we were going to eat And have fellowship in the fellowship hall. So I grew up thinking that fellowship was all about food. And I must admit it's part of it. And I like the idea of a designated place uh, to eat together. You know, like our courtyard. But I've come to discover that this word means far more than just eating together. The idea of fellowship was a big part of the life of the early church. And I think there's much we can learn from them. And to do that, we are going to look at 2 Corinthians, not Ephesians, 2 Corinthians 13, 11 through 14. But before we go there, let me begin by giving you a brief background to this letter to the Corinthian church. Now Corinth was a very special place. It was the Mediterranean center of world commerce and pagan idolatry. It was the capital of selfish, sinful indulgence where people didn't blush. It was the Vegas of the Wild West. And what happened in Corinth? didn't stay in Corinth. They were spreading their moral, immoral sewage 
throughout the region. And it was here, intentionally by Paul, that he planted this strategic church in the spring of A.D. 51. He personally ministered there for almost a year and a half. He has deep roots to this church and these people. About five years later, he wrote the second letter to the Corinthians around A.D. 56 or 57. Actually, if we trace back through the scriptures, it looks like he has written four letters to the church. Apparently, two were lost or were not intended to be included in the scriptures. He also has visited Corinth several times, returning to build up the church that he loved. But while he was in Ephesus, he heard of unresolved problems in the church. There were false itinerant apostles and teachers who had infiltrated the church. There were childish divisions, divisions in the church over who was with Peter, who was with Paul, or others saying, I'm with Jesus. They were dividing themselves up with their loyalties. In his first letter, Paul reprimanded the church for tolerating immoral conduct in the church. And he commanded them to act decisively so that an errant brother would come to repentance. That was the purpose of that letter. And critics in the church accused Paul of being either too lenient or too harsh. But after the first letter was received, the church followed Paul's admonition to enact church discipline. And the man repented. However, a contingency in the church did not want to forgive this man or agree even with a process of restoration. So this was a church under siege, basically from all angles. And that's where we pick up our study of this second letter. But we will turn to the very last words of this letter in chapter 13. And I want us to look at these verses. We're going to look first at the verses 11 through 13, which will talk about the fellowship of the saints. What was needed to restore fellowship in the church. And then in verse 14, the final prayer. A benediction is talks about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So we'll kind of divide our study this morning. Here is what Paul says as he nears the end. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Now, these verses relate to what's needed or what should characterize restoration of the church to itself. The fellowship of the saints. 
Now, the purpose and priority of fellowship was to share an intimate, radical commitment to one another. It was to be a commitment between two or more parties or people to make all things common. I'll explain that. Now, we see this lived out in the early church in Acts 2.43, where it describes the, if you would, the church and the life of the early church. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That's what characterized them. That's what it was like to belong in the early church. So the church was not a building. It was not a social club. It was an entertainment center. But they saw themselves uniquely as brothers and sisters. They saw themselves as the family of God. It was a place for mutual sacrifice. For the good of one another. They were intimately and radically committed to each other because of their fellowship with God. In other words, fellowship with God made fellowship with each other not only possible but required. 1 John 1.3 may be the clearest statement of why there is fellowship in the church, or how there can be fellowship in the church. It says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Notice he says it's the gospel that we preach that will bind us together, that we can have fellowship. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Our fellowship Repeat it again, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That emphasizes the point here. That our fellowship with each other comes from a fellowship with the Father and the Son. And it is to a broken, hurting church that Paul gave in our text six specific pleas, if you would, for fellowship in the church. Their commands, exhortations. It's summarizing everything that he has said so far, basically in both letters, but especially the second one. And the first plea is, of all things, rejoice. No one felt like rejoicing. <laughs> They'd gone through and were going through a very difficult time. Fellowship is characterized by joy. It is our delight to be in fellowship with God and with each other. The church is not to be characterized by gloom and duty. Actually, quite honestly, church is a great place to belong where love and fun can go on. And I don't apologize for the church having fun together. We're celebrating life. Rejoicing is the joy of glorifying God together. It is the expression of gratitude for giving 
for getting from God lifelong friendships. Joy or rejoicing was a sign of the Holy Spirit's fruit in the life of the believer and in the life of the church. We know that Paul exhorted the Philippians to rejoice always, even when they were in adversity, because their joy was to be in Christ and not necessarily in their predicament. So intimate fellowship in a church, I believe, is a great way to live. Rejoice in the friendships that we have as we serve together. This is the second plea. It is to aim for restoration. Now some translations say be perfect or be made complete. And the idea of restoration is to knit back together what has been torn apart. The word for restoration is used to describe the apostles as they were mending their fishermen's nets. They were equipping, they were restoring their fishermen's nets. And it's the same word used by Paul in Ephesians when he speaks about the gifts of leadership in the church where it talks about that he has given to the church equipping gifts. Gifts so that people can do the work of ministry. Equipping, mending, restoring are all part of that idea. Restoration means to set back in place what was broken. Church discipline is a necessary part of preserving and restoring fellowship. Discipline is not for punishment or retribution. Every step in this process is time-consuming, and yet it is worthwhile and necessary. The purpose of all of this is to win back an errant, unrepentive brother or sister in Christ. It is to reset, to mend the fellowship that was broken in the church. See if I can illustrate that. I once uh, played on a church softball team in a church league. I don't know if you've ever done that, but you kind of think it might be a very a fellowship of fun and uh, love and grace. Not. I made a hit and I ran around the bases. And when I got near third base, the baseman had his glove on and he saw me coming and he took his elbow to lay me out. He takes it like this and he put his elbow like that and he hit my left hand. I was coming in. He hit it like this, and immediately pain shot right throughout my body. And my hand began to to swell up. I looked like Popeye. And uh, I was taken immediately to the ER, and there's no question about it, I had broken my hand. And the doctor said, I have to set the bones in your hand before I could put a cast on it. And I said, oh, okay. 
And he says, uh, now I'm not going to put you out for this. So it's going to hurt. But it'll be quick. And so like a real man, I said, sure, doctor, I could take it. Little did I know. He pushed his thumbs on the back of my hand so that the bones seemed like they were coming out on this side. I screamed like a little piglet. (laughs) Resetting broken bones can really hurt. But let me add, the sin of others and their restoration can also really hurt. But it must be done to repair broken lives. The church at Corinth that once tolerated unrepentant sin now was faced with what to do after the accused had repented and confessed of his sin. What do we do now? Well, some wanted more justice because they thought he deserved punishment. Others wanted more grace because they thought Enough is enough. So Paul wrote in this second letter, in 2 Corinthians 2, 6-8, these words. This is after they had dealt with the problem. For such a one, that is the one who had repented, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. My friends, if there's a way to describe these words, it's called grace. For this man, he had had enough. Reputation shot. He was paying a high price. Don't minimize that. Restoration, as spelled out in that chapter, chapter 2, breaks down for us three things we need to keep in mind. First is this. What's required? Forgiveness. Forgiveness of the repentant. Forgiveness isn't always easy to do, but it is required. It's not optional. Reconciliation requires forgiving, even though forgetting may take a long time. Restoration means not holding on to grudges or wanting vengeance. Ephesians 4 has some wonderful things to say to us. Here it is. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? As God in Christ forgave you or us. We are to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. That means there is no longer any condemnation. Because Christ paid the full price for all of our sin. 
That's how sinners are to be restored after their confession and their repentance. What do you do when you forgive them? What's next? Comfort them. Comfort the repentant believer. Comforting repentant believers means to literally come alongside them so that they are not alone, that they're not overwhelmed more than they can swallow. To come alongside them when they are overwhelmed with guilt or facing the devastating consequences of their deeds or words. Paul had another church with the same problem and he wrote to them, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritually, and I would say spiritually minded, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Fascinating. Hmm. When we do not forgive others, when we will not restore others, we are vulnerable to our own temptations like bitterness and divisiveness. Fellowship is restored when it is done with a spirit of gentleness and not a spirit of harsh revenge. Now some churches deal with their problems and others dismiss them as insignificant. Now, if anyone is looking for a church without problems, you won't find one. But if you think you found one, here's my advice. Don't join it. Because it will no longer be perfect. I could say this after 45 years of being a pastor. I have had... To do restoration in a church several times. The most painful memories of my ministry. Okay, forgive. Comfort. Now, he says, reaffirm your love for them. You see, affirmation comes after there has been that repentance. After there's forgiveness. And there has come The sense of comfort. Affirmation confirms the worth of a repentant believer. Even though they may have made mistakes and done things they shouldn't have done. To restore fellowship in a church there must be forgiveness, comfort and reaffirmation of love for them. This is not just for pastors or leaders. This would be for all of us. And that's what Jesus commanded us to do in John 13. A new commandment. It's not really new, but it's new in dimension because of Christ. I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples If you have love for one another, what is the great manifestation of the truth of the gospel? It is the love we have for one another. That's what builds our credibility in the community. 
This is important to understand. What I'm going to say right now, make sure that you put it in your mind. Think carefully about it and ponder this. Restoration doesn't necessarily mean that a person who has committed some offense are guaranteed of returning to any place of leadership or responsibility they may have had before. But they still must be restored to the church. Restored to each other. The relationship renewed. Because trust must be earned and integrity proven before reinstated to any ministry. We know nothing about the man in Corinth. It was time for the Corinthians to mend. To mend a broken life and begin to rejoice. And by the way, friends, I'm ready. I'm ready to rejoice. Now, the third plea in our text was comfort. Again, he repeats it. Another is to, is, it's mentioned again because of its importance. To comfort means to encourage, to exhort, strengthen the weak. It means reaching down to help somebody who has fallen. And the church should and must adopt the marine motto. No man left behind. We don't shoot our wounded. But we bandage them so they can return to battle. If restoration were easy, Paul wouldn't have had to write all these letters. It's tough. Here's the fourth plea. Whatever you do, agree with one another. That doesn't mean we can't have differences of opinion. But once the restoration has begun, we need to agree to the process, unite behind it with a harmonious mindset. That's what he's saying. Fifth, live in peace. Any difference of opinion about anything in the church, especially a restoration process, should not become a cause for alienation of anyone in the church. Now, how do we find peace? Well, first we find peace with God through faith in Christ. Then we find peace within by the means of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we live peaceably with one another. Again, this is another one of these exhortations that it's not, well, I'll wait and see. Or I'll wait till I feel like it. Rather, Paul, in Romans 14, 19 said, So then... Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. I'd like to emphasize the word pursue. Pursue what's right, what's biblical. And not let our personal feelings get in the way of our obedience to Christ and to his word. Restoration calls for all contention. Debating, envying, backbiting, whispering. 
And all grudges have to stop. It's time to move on. The work of fellowship, worship, disciple, and evangelism. That's our work. We got to get on. And that's what I'm committed to. And I'm asking each of you, during this time of my interim, to join me in this process. Now, the sixth plea may seem kind of interesting to you. He said, greet one another with a holy kiss. And you go, why does he put that in there? There's a good reason. Peter had it in his letter as well. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Holy and a kiss of love. This was the practice in Israel and it is in other cultures. If you want to know more about that, come with me to some of my travels. I get a lot of kisses on the cheek, whatever. And it's an outward expression of heartfelt affection. But it's holy and it's loving. And usually this practice was, this greeting was practiced between a man with a man and a woman with a woman. And that's why it was such a controversy. You remember when the woman kissed Jesus on the feet? Sort of like, wait a minute, she can't do that. Now, remember, this is not a big smooch. Just want to be clear about that. It's not a smooch on the lips, but it's what I call a full kiss. Over both shoulders, near the ear, near the ear. Not on the ear or in the ear. I think I've made my point. You get the idea. Sort of like, ah, good to see you. I've practiced that quite a bit, so I'm getting pretty good at that. Um, That's a pretty common thing in other cultures. It's not in ours. So for the guys in the church, here in our church, I'd like to say... A side hug, a knuckle bump, or a handshake will be just fine with me. Thank you. A holy kiss or a kiss of love was an outer expression of commitment to one another. That we are part back together again. We enjoy fellowship together. Greet another with a holy kiss was an outward expression that we've gone through the process and we're back. Peace to all. He says, peace to all who are in Christ. Now this, these six exhortations come with a promise. Don't minimize this promise. It's the promise of God's presence. The church that lovingly cares for its own and then works towards restoration has been promised that the God of love and peace will be with you. 
And he commands us in the scriptures to be reconciled to him as well as to one another. And Paul will say to the Corinthians, we have been given the ministry of what? Reconciliation. Now where the church attempts to go through this process, Jesus made this, pros- this promise. And this is in the context of obeying, obeying uh, the word of God by going through a process to restore someone. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So be assured that Jesus is here with us in all of this. And that should be comforting. He's especially present in that process. And he's especially present here this morning as he is revealed in his word. Then he comes to the very last of this book. He offers the prayer. It's a benediction. It's a blessing on the church that has had problems. Openly admitted it. Openly dealt with it. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the, what? Fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's a prayer of blessing. A benediction on the people. Benediction on the people who are trying to bring back the fellowship it has enjoyed. Notice too that this is a Trinitarian prayer. It's a blessing that comes from Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Each person of the Trinity is conveying their blessings to the church that God loves. This must be important. Let's look at this promise divided up a little bit here. The first promise is that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. Paul had written to Paul, excuse me, the Lord had spoken to Paul in his deepest, darkest hour, the moment he felt the weakest of all. And this is what he said to Paul. What? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. I feel weak. This is a weak moment. But his grace is more than sufficient for us. You see, our Savior came to bring grace and truth. Justice is what we deserve. But grace is the forgiveness we don't deserve. And his preserving grace can get us through our weakest moment. When you're weak, he will give you sufficient grace and power. The second promise is that you will receive the love of God. He will be with us. To be assured, to be assured, to be confident that we are loved and treasured 
by our Heavenly Father should give each of us confidence to go through anything for His name's sake. What James says. He's exhorting the church as well. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God? And so we are. Think of that. That's who we are. We belong to a family. God is our Father and He's promised to give us love because His love is sufficient as well. Now we come to the third part of that prayer. It's the third promise that the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with us. Now friends, this is a blessing that is often not understood nor appropriated. It is having intimate personal fellowship with God Because of the indwelling Holy Spirit in us. Think of that. He's the one who applies the grace and the love of God to us. Pours out the love of God in our hearts. He's God's guarantee or pledge that all that God is and all that he has for us can be applied to us. That's why it's called the spirit of fellowship. Let me repeat again this definition of fellowship we looked at earlier. Fellowship is an intimate, radical commitment between two or more parties to make all things common. Think of this. God has made a pledge that all he is and has is made available to us. That's fellowship. And the Spirit is the one who applies that to us. Listen to uh, John. So we proclaim also to you that you may too have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. We saw that again here. Notice fellowship begins with fellowship with the Father and the Son. And now that's what is the basis of our fellowship with one another. I I don't know... uh, um, when I've been alone uh, traveling around, uh, there have been times when I've been in a dark room, cold room, uh, in, in China particularly, where I just felt so alone at night. I cried out to the Lord, Lord, I need help. I, I, just, I, not, I, I just feel so alone. I feel isolated. I feel, uh, you know... Being watched. Then I came across this verse about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And I thought, oh man, that's God's pledge to me. I'm not alone. I'm never alone. It's, he wants to fellowship with me? Are you kidding? What does he get out of me? What do I give him? A lot of repentance. A lot of confession of sin. And yet he, this, this is the, the strangest thing for me. He actually enjoys fellowship with me. And we can enjoy intimate personal fellowship with the Father and the Son because the Holy Spirit is present with us. 
And the Holy Spirit has made this radical commitment to us. That all the resources of heaven, all the riches and treasures of knowing Christ, he shares with us. But for there to be fellowship, mutual commitment, we must be willing to make the same commitment. That he has full rights to every part of my life. If we say we have fellowship with him, that is with Christ, while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, you notice I thought he would just say with Christ, but he says fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, will cleanse us all. From our sin. Us from all sin. These are amazing concepts. If we are walking in darkness in our hearts. Fellowship with God is interrupted. And that's when the Holy Spirit is given. And committed to convicting us of our sin. So that we our fellowship can be. Restored. Renewed. Let me say this in closing. We could desire nothing more or better than to have fellowship with God by means of the indwelling Holy Spirit. I don't know what your greatest desire is. I don't know what you pray most for, what you want most in your life, but I could tell you this. You couldn't desire anything better or more important than having fellowship with God By the means of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And this is a promise. A promise that is given to us by God. That we too must also. Be fully available to him. For there to be intimate fellowship together. There are many things that have been said. And I hope they're taken in love. How would I want to close? What would I want to say? I think I'll let Paul's prayer stand. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Father, you know our hearts. You know our lives intimately. You have made a commitment to us. You sent your son to die for us. And then you gave us your Holy Spirit to regenerate us, to sanctify us, to be a pledge of our salvation. Today, Father, we ask for your love. Your love to prevail in all things. We want to do the right thing. And we know that the right thing is to do is to forgive.
comfort, and reaffirm. May the Holy Spirit do his work today in my heart and the heart of each one who hears my words. I pray this, Father, that you might be glorified and that your church may be edified and built up. Amen.